So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Calgary to rename unemployment office after Stephen Harper. 50% female cabinet appointments lead to 5,000% increase in guys who suddenly care about merit in cabinet. Men's rights group demands safe space on campus to complain about women's safe space on campus. Those are some of the recent headlines from North America's trusted source of news, The Beaverton. The type of stuff they do is pretty far removed from some of the other satire in Canada. I need my popularity to go up if I am going to get another majority. <laughs> so the Beaverton isn't the funny accent, ha ha ha, wink wink, clown wig kind of humor. They tackle pretty heavy stuff. ISIS. ISIS sends thank you food basket to people who set fire to Peterborough Mosque. Sexism. Conservatives once again appoint a woman to clean up their mess. The refugee crisis. Syrian refugees relieve they won't end up in Saskatchewan. It often makes a cutting point in a way that the real news doesn't. And of course, like every other satirical site, they've had controversy. They, in fact, recently pulled a story that some people found offensive to Indigenous people. And they've also had stories shared around the world as if it was real news. So we caught up with Luke Gordon Field, the editor-in-chief of the Beaverton, to talk about the place of satire in Canadian politics. I'm Andre Demise. And I'm Desmond Cole. And this is Canada Land Commons. This episode of Canada Land Commons is sponsored by Canadian journalists for free expression. CJFE defends the right to free expression in Canada and around the world. One of the ways they do that is through a fund that helps journalists in distress. CJFE's promotions and communications coordinator, Alex Buck, told me about it. The Journalists in Distress Fund is a fund that CJFE has set up. What we do is we provide financial assistance to journalists who have encountered problems because of their work. So if they are either facing jail time, facing threats, if their lives are threatened by either their government or individual actors, we would help them to get to safety, get to a place where they can continue doing their work, whatever they might need to stay safe and do what they do. When you become a member of CJFE, you'll be contributing to this fund as well as other great initiatives. Listeners of Commons get 70% off of memberships. Just go to cjfe.org and enter the code CANADALAND when you sign up. Journalists are risking their lives to keep you informed. Help keep them safe. So we make mistakes all the time on this program, but we need to issue a correction for one because Andre made it. 
<laughs> for once. Andre made a mistake for so basically what happened was I said, We don't have a minister of youth to Sachi, and she agreed with me. What I should have said was we have a minister of intergovernmental affairs and youth. That minister is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I have anything that's ridiculous. And I should have been very, very clear that we don't have a minister of youth who is just a minister of youth. Was that your apology, Andre? <sighs> Prime Minister Trudeau, I am very sorry for not mentioning that you are the Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs and Youth. And to our listeners for letting you think that we don't have a Minister of Youth. By the way, come on our show, Prime Minister Trudeau. Luke Gordon-Field is the editor-in-chief of The Beaverton. He joined us in studio in Toronto. So, Luke, I've read stories in The Beaverton. Mm. I've noticed a hell of a lot of mistakes. You guys oh. not, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of fact-checking and continuity problems that I've noticed in the Beaverton. Do you guys not have a fact-checker or? No, absolutely. We don't have a fact-checker because we are <laughs> non-funded by anything. We're just a bunch of comedy writers. Yeah. Uh, also, it's fake news. So fact-checking <laughs> is problematic with fake news. Well, I don't know. Because, I mean, you, you, uh, there was a story that ran about Mark Saunders, who's the chief of the Toronto Police. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of funny because you said that Mark Saunders was carted on his way to his swearing-in ceremony. Which was hilarious to me because he did acknowledge that he was once carded, but that's because of the clothes that he was wearing, not because of the fact that he was black or anything. Right. Let's just explain for people who don't know what carding is that uh, down here in Toronto, when the police don't have a reason to talk to you. Carding is racial profiling, basically. Let's not get into the whole like, oh, stopping you for no reason or, oh, they're trying to investigate a specific crime or, or community safety or any of that. It's basically racial profile. But they put a nice name on it, call it carding. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and some, some jurisdictions call it street <laughs> checks. Sounds like you're trying to get into a club. <laughs> <laughs> carding for all of you out there who don't know, just insert racial profiling by police when we say carding. Yeah. But yeah, story about Mark Saunders. So he, he said that he'd been carded before, but that's because of the clothes he was wearing. So basically like, you know, don't wear the wrong clothes and you won't get carded. Right. But it actually spoke to something that I thought was really important because what you said in that article just off the top, just, like, just to clarify, I'm not trying to. I didn't write that article. No, no, no. I got okay. that, but just it ran. So you know. But it was yeah. really, it was really funny because if I had sent that to somebody who didn't know what the Beaverton was, that could have been Mark Saunders word for word, and mm. it was complete satire. Which it's almost to me, it's gotten to the point now in Canadian politics that it's almost like you don't need satire because our politicians say such ridiculous things. Oh, so does that does that make it hard for you occasionally? It does. I mean, Rob Ford was a satire, so yeah. at some point we just kind of threw up our hands and went, well. No more Rob Ford stories because yeah. his life has become uh, a You can't make itself. up things that are yeah. more ridiculous than exactly. what has actually happened. It's yeah. the ultimate truth is stranger than fiction. Sometimes what's fun with satire to do is you take the truth and apply it in a strange context. So you right. take something someone actually said and put it into a context that isn't in the context of what they said it. Or you have the truth mixed with a kind of deadpan journalistic voice that points out the absurdity of the truth. Right. So with the Saunders story, and you know, I don't want to speak for the writer who did write it. I only helped edit it. But I don't know if he was aware of that actual incident and he was commenting on it or he was just commenting on the general practice of carding and how absurd it is. But it became a fun, serious way to poke light at the issue, right. uh, which is obviously a very serious issue. That writer's name is Tristan Bradley, by the way. And something I thought was interesting about that was that that story showed up all over my social media by people being like, can you believe that the new black police chief just got carted on the way to his swearing in <laughs> right. Is that a good sign for you? Is that when you guys know that you've hit something is when you make fun of something and people are bought and sold that this had to be true? 
sometimes that's a great sign. I think especially with serious issues because it points out the absurdity of what's really happening. Sometimes it's not necessarily what we want because we want people to recognize the humor in what we're trying to do. We're not trying to fool people. Our goal isn't to trick people and make them think it's real generally. Really? No. I mean, our goal is to make people laugh. We're a comedy website. But I think there's sometimes the humor in our fans or people who are at least aware of us seeing other people think it's real, and then going, oh, okay, I see what they did there. So there is an element of humor in that when people make that mistake. I mean, there are whole blogs on the internet devoted to people getting Onion articles wrong and thinking they're real and uh, and how hilarious it is that people think, you know, this insane story is real. It gets a little bit difficult to point out how bad Canadian politics are when it's almost like you're the only voice out there that's willing to go there. Yeah. Other satire shows, this hour is 22 minutes. I mean, personally, not a fan. I've yeah. watched it here and there, and I just found it to be toothless myself. Mm-hmm. You guys actually go after politicians in a way that I've, and other journalists in a way that I've never really seen before. So, I am, you know, of a similar mindset to you on Twenty Two Minutes. I didn't grow up watching it. It was never my show. Yeah. Um, and it was never really my friend's show. It was not anything with that, you know, hanging around, you know, in breaks between classes at university. People were talking about oh, Twenty Two Minutes. Like, yeah. That was just never the thing. It was Daily Show. It was The Onion. It was Colbert. So I think we all came to it from the sense of. We wanted to do something different from what Canadians were exposed to and what had been done in Canada to date and very much in the sense of we're going to not pull our punches so much. We're not going to you know, make the goofy joke. We're going to make the more biting joke. What kind of stuff were you into growing up then? For me, it was The Daily Show was a revelation. I was uh, 14 when Stuart took over the show. Yeah. So he became my guy right off the bat. And what I loved from the outset was the lone voice of reason in an ocean of insanity. That was what John Stewart was to me with American politics. And he was so good at pointing out the insanity while entertaining that it became almost unbelievable at times. And then Colbert did such a perfect parody that those two became my angel and devil on my shoulder. Right, that I right. just loved watching. Are there people like that in Canada that you could look to and say, yep, that's my guy? No. <laughs> sorry. Sorry to every so no, good you're the Canadian guy. comedian. No, no, God, no. But uh, sorry to every good Canadian comedian out there. But no, there was no you know, person like that for me in Canada. So let's talk about that, actually, because a lot of our satire, you know, people wearing wigs, doing funny accents yep. of politicians. I will give a shout out right here on this program to... Air Farce and the Chicken Cannon, which was so stupid all <laughs> yeah. the time that it ended up being hilarious. You okay. know, the fire. But I wonder why do you think a lot of Canadian satire is so silly and mm-hmm. timid and toothless? Why do you think that is? I don't think it's toothless in the sense that they're not trying to be something they're not. They're embracing what they are and they're embracing the silly, weird side of Canadian comedy, which is. A great tradition. I mean, our best comedians, our best comedy shows historically, SCTV, Kids in the Hall, they are silly, weird people who aren't trying to make a point. They're trying to make you laugh. And so I think 22 Minutes is very much in the vein of that tradition of comedy, which is fine. And I have friends who work on that show, and and it's great for what it is. But it's not necessarily what spoke to me, and it doesn't sound like what spoke to you guys. And it's also not necessarily the only type of satire that's needed anymore because I think what's happened in, especially in the last decade, but even before that is, you know, things have gotten a little more serious, even in Canada where our politics have traditionally not been, you know, viewed as life or death. They've been viewed as silly men saying silly things or whatever the case may be. I mean, predominantly men, sometimes women. So now it's become 
you know, things, especially <laughs> under Harper, got a Can't little more notice you're saying this in a room full of men. But. Well, yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's the case with the Beaverton, too, whereas we're trying to be these progressive people. But, you know, I'm the whitest man in the world, so I can't really <laughs> run away from that as much as I would like to. But anyways, all I'm just trying to say is I think I'm trying to find something great. not white about you, but yeah. you're, you're wearing like a plaid shirt. There's nothing. And like there's the flipped hair, it's blonde. Like, there's nothing. There's, there's nothing I can do nope. here. All right. There's nothing. Yeah. Uh, I'm not even going to try and try <laughs> any kind of defense of myself. There's nothing. So I think 22 Minutes is great for what it does. I just think there's... There are needs uh, in Canadian political discussion and Canadian comedic discussion that 22 Minutes isn't necessarily serving. You guys riff a lot on the idea that you're a trusted news source, which obviously you're not trying to be. Right. Do you think that there is a credibility problem in Canadian journalism? And if so, do you guys benefit from that? Yes. I mean, I, I think the problem with any kind of critique of Canadian journalism, Canadian society as a whole, is we say, well, it's better than in the U.S. It probably is. But that doesn't mean it's good. It just means we're better than maybe the worst in the world. Canada! Uh, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I think, yes, absolutely, people are becoming dissatisfied with the news source of the day. From a Toronto example, CB24 has borderline, especially during the 40 years, became this bizarre place where these absurd opinions were spoken and not challenged. Like Rob Ford said so many just outright lies on that program and they wouldn't challenge him and they wouldn't do the job of saying, that's just blatantly not true. They would just go, okay, well, that's your opinion, Mr. Mayor, and moving on. (laughs) Uh, So I think, yes, there's a growing dissatisfaction with Canadian journalism. And I think that some of our best articles, not necessarily our most popular, but some of our best articles are calling other media on on their shit. When you're looking at something that's really delicate, like the refugee crisis, how do you approach that and handle it with a certain degree of tact that it deserves while at the same time skewering politicians who deserve to be skewered? Yeah, that is tough. It's certainly not something I think we've done perfectly. I mean, I think we've been on generally doing well with the refugee crisis, but, you know, every new article is a challenge. You can't just say, oh, we know what we're doing now. We don't need to worry about it. Every time a new headline is proposed and a new joke has come up, you really have to think about like – you know, if it's a sensitive issue, are we on the right side of things? Are we punching up, not punching down? Well, you did. Um, you were trying to do that with the uh, murdered and missing indigenous women. And right. it seemed like you hit the wrong note with that. Let's just tell our listeners a little bit about that. That was a story about Ashley Collingbull, who is uh, a Cree woman and who became Miss Universe and who's the first First Nations woman to hold that honor. And uh, there was an article that you guys made uh, suggesting that if Ms. Collingbull went missing that she would get more attention than... She she would be the first uh, indigenous woman to gain national coverage if she went missing. If she went missing, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Which, so that was... in one sense, like, I got where you were coming from. Like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, finally we're actually going to start caring about uh, indigenous women. Yeah. But at the same time, it fell a little bit flat and some people didn't really appreciate the tone of the headline. Yeah, absolutely. Some people didn't. Um, I don't think it fell flat in the sense that it wasn't funny. I think, yeah. I think it was very biting and very sharp and didn't fall flat. I just think people were outraged that we would make a joke about this subject. In fairness, we'd actually made several jokes before. So that wasn't our concern going in because we'd made other articles on that subject that had received positive attention. I think people were outraged for a few reasons. One, we made a joke about a subject that was very sensitive. And two, that we had named someone specifically. So it wasn't just a joke about the general subject, that it was a joke about this person specifically and suggesting that she could go missing. And I I certainly understand why they were upset. And and most of the people upset that, you know, reached out to us were members of the Aboriginal community. And we took their points to heart. and, and, And some of the writers who reached out to us made excellent points on why they didn't think that was an appropriate headline. On the other hand, we had after we took the story down, we probably had more people tweet at us, Facebook message us, email us, mad that we'd taken it down because oh. they thought it was effective satire and they yeah. thought we were, you know, essentially being cowards for taking it down and, and giving in to the PC police. To use but that's that. the but fine line that you always walk when you were in, yeah. involved in satire. So you're going to tackle sensitive subjects and you're going to skewer people 
that you know you, you believe uh, deserve to be made fun of. Yeah. But you also have to sort of walk that fine line of making sure that you're not making fun of people who are already disadvantaged. And in fairness, I mean, I think that article did that. The target of that article was not Ms. Collingwell. It was not the Aboriginal community. It was the media. Right. So in terms of the punch up, punch down equation, I think we were on the right side of that. I'm not saying I think that article was perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just saying if you're going to go to, well, you shouldn't make fun of people who are already oppressed or, or suffering, which I totally agree with, that article didn't do that. You issued an apology. Yes. Is that the first time you've ever done that? Yes. Is it the only time? It's the only time we've ever issued an apology, yeah. I mean, I would love to say it's the only time we'll ever do it again, but that would be you know, setting myself up for future pain. The main reason we took it down and the reason we issued the apology, and I'm the one who drafted the apology, was the Aboriginal community in this country is absolutely the last people we wanted to hurt in any way, especially over a subject as sensitive as missing and murdered Aboriginal women. And we've written numerous articles on Aboriginal issues throughout the lifespan of our website. And most of them have been very well received, particularly by the Aboriginal community. We have a lot of Aboriginal leaders and and influential Aboriginal writers who have reached out to us to tell us they're fans and, and retweeted our articles or whatever the case may be. So it was just a case of, even though I saw the merits to the article, and even though I didn't fully agree with the criticism that a lot of people, specifically Aboriginals, were, were leveling at us. I understand that the article wasn't perfect, and I agree that maybe some more work should have been done on it before we put it up. And again, that community being the absolute last people we wanted to be opposed to when very much we wanted to help them and help champion causes near and dear to their movement as much as we could, it felt like the right move. And it still does. So that was an example of a story that maybe you didn't get perfectly right. What kind of work are you the most proud of? I'm often the most proud of articles that don't necessarily gain a ton of attention, either because they make a very good point or more likely because of my viewpoint, they're just really funny to me. And so I think in terms of my absolute favorite articles from a comedic standpoint, I mean, none of them would necessarily resonate. From my favorite articles in terms of a, you know, a politics or the viewpoint we made, I mean, I'm very proud of the Bradwall uh, refugee article we did, which was like, you know, uh, Syrian refugees just glad they don't have to move to Saskatchewan. <laughs> you know, this is a, a while ago, but I'm, I'm talking about Aboriginal issues. One of the first articles we had that really did anything at all, and at the time we were a very struggling website, was when the Harbor government announced they had done an audit of uh, First Nations communities and determined they were wasting all their money and the expenses were out of control. So we did an article about the premise was that the First Nations community had audited the federal government and come up with uh, absurd amount of results, like, you know, World War One was just a total waste of money. All these, all these <laughs> so it was just a complete flip of the truth. You know, again, I didn't write it. That was written by a gentleman named Laurent Noonan. But uh, that one I was really proud of just being involved in and helping contribute a couple jokes here and there. And uh, the first Chris Hadfield story we did, which was when he came home from space and he uh, found himself receiving a $1.3 million Rogers bill. I, 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 just from all his... Uh, uh, YouTube videos and yeah. everything he did up there. I was pretty proud of that one too. A headline that uh, Ian McIntyre wrote a little while back was saying that um, because of the gender parity issue, right. suddenly there's, like, there's a 5,000% increase in men who care about you know the quality of cabinet members. Yeah, um, yeah that was a but, good one. Very but nice. there were a lot of women who'd said the same thing. And um, I, I wonder, like, is there a space for women and for people of color in terms of uh, writing good satire comedy? I just, I see a lot of it, but a lot of it passes below the radar because I feel like they're not allowed to say that. Like, you're not a serious person if you can say these things out in public. I think that is the the huge struggle within the comedy community. And I think that's been a very valid criticism that's been labeled at pretty much every comedic institution. I mean, you look at the writing staff of every late night show and it's, you know, 10 out of 11 white guys and then yeah. maybe one woman or one person of color. And, uh, you know, I think that's 
absolutely the kind of struggle that's going to be for us and for everyone going forward. Um, you know, Ian, uh, as you obviously know, is uh, a wonderful writer and very, very much a feminist. So I felt very comfortable with him pitching that headline. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we do have several great female writers. We have writers of color. Not enough. We need more. So it's absolutely something that we work on reaching out to people. And when we see talented writers, I often just will Facebook message them out of the blue and say, yeah. hey, ever thought about this? And, you know, probably 60 or 70 percent just aren't interested. And, and a couple of people try it out for a while and it's not their thing. And that's well, fine. I don't I don't say that to sort of go after you to say that no, your I stuff think is you too were. white. It's more like, um, do you think that there's uh, some element where people of color and women like have it in them to say these really great and funny and satirical things, but they don't do it because they feel like they may be putting themselves at risk? To the first part of your question, they have it in them 100%. Yeah. Yes, of course. I mean, the idea that the only type of comedy worth reading or listening to or, or watching is from the minds of white men is, I mean, that's pretty it's funny. Pretty stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, is yeah, exactly. So, you know, we all need more Seth Rogen growing up movies, but uh, there might be some room for other things. Um, so, you know, I'm sure the night before is great, but um, of course, you know, there are brilliant female comedic writers. There are brilliant uh, people of color who are, so funny. Do I think that they're, you know, silencing themselves or being silenced by the culture that we've built? Probably. I mean, of course, again, establishing my whiteness, I'm not the best person to get into their minds right. and speak for them. But I, I would only imagine what it would feel like to make a joke that if it was coming from a white male would be just kind of like, yeah, hey, great joke and get online hate or men's rights activists coming after you or whatever the case may be. I can only imagine that that would take its toll on your psyche and your creativity over time. Switching gears for a second. So one of the, the funniest takes, at least on the recent Canadian election was actually written by a, not even a U.S. comedian, but a comedian in the U.S. who's of British background, yeah. uh, John Oliver. What does it say to you that it takes a foreigner to be able to look into the fishbowl of our politics and say something really funny? I mean, I think it's it says that to a degree, uh, we're not doing our job. Absolutely. I mean, the fact that that was the place that, you know, a lot of Canadians saw the humor in the Canadian election as opposed to, say, what 22 Minutes was doing um, or, you know, any other source of Canadian comedy. I think to a degree it speaks to Canadian desire for American recognition. Don't get me wrong. I think that's a funny sketch. I think that's a funny introductory sketch to the Canadian election. I think if you were paying attention to the Canadian election on a day-to-day, some of those jokes to me felt a little bit like, well, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Stephen Harper looks like an evil Muppet, whatever the case is. We know. Um, I but, think he uh, looks like Lego Man, but – That's know. also true. <laughs> yeah. That is also true. You said that. He looks like president business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I think that sketch was funny, but I think no matter what that had said, because that show is a few things. It's cool. It's American and you know it's on HBO. I think – that would have gotten shared around just because of the recognition. Right. Same way whenever Stewart back in the day used to mention Canada, that I would see that clip on Facebook. No matter what we do in Canada, there's always going to be Canadians, and I'm, you know, I might be one of them, who, who want to see the American take on our country because it means Americans are talking about us. And I also think John Oliver is very good at writing content that will get shared. Right. And that's been true of everything across the board. And I think that that's something that Canadian comedy shows, TV shows, could absolutely you know, learn from. The Globe and Mail actually recently wrote about the Beaverton, mm-hmm. and a lot of the article that they wrote had to do with laws around making satire, particularly making yeah. fun of politicians. Can you explain to us the legal minefield around making fun of people in Canada and how Bill C-11 has affected that? Yeah, I mean, Canada, we all, I think, of, in our generation grew up with the charter and we grew up with the concept that freedom of expression is, is ingrained in Canadian law. 
historically that actually wasn't the case. Freedom of expression was an element of Canadian law, but it was constantly bumping up against defamation laws, meaning you can't say bad things about people if they're not true. And defamation laws were traditionally very strong in Canada. So if you said something that was even a little bit untrue, you could find yourself sued for millions and millions of dollars. About anyone, even a politician. About anyone, even a politician. Uh, it could be a guy on the street. It could be the prime minister of the country. Uh, there's very famously a case after World War One when uh, the general who'd been leading Canadian uh, efforts in World War One was... I guess, slandered by a couple of Canadian politicians for his role in causing the deaths of young Canadians. And it led to this huge defamation lawsuit in which he, he successfully sued these politicians and, you know, they had to pay him by that time a huge sum of money. So defamation laws were always historically very high in esteem in Canada, as opposed to in the U.S. where they've always had, you know, a very clear freedom of expression, constitutional amendment, and they've always skewed more to the sides of like, well, if it's someone famous, if it's someone in politics, and if it's the, the goal is humor, it's okay. Yeah. Canada, that's never been the case. Canada, it's never been the case that say, well, of course it's not true. It's a joke. So that's, that's been a, a real struggle for Canadian comedians throughout the history of this country. And I think the new law, it has dual purposes. The main purpose is actually to do with copyright, meaning back in the day, if you wanted to make a joke about Coca-Cola – you were in trouble because you can't show Coca-Cola, you can't infringe on their trademark, you can't you know, do anything that would violate their intellectual property in the course of making the joke, which obviously makes it difficult to make a joke about them. Right. So one of the things the new law is doing is saying, well, it's okay to make jokes about public companies. It's okay to make jokes about brands. It's okay to make jokes that could potentially be seen as damaging to a, a trademark. The other thing that we're hoping the law stands for, but the main thing I should point out is that the law hasn't been tested by any court case yet. So until you see how the courts enforce a law, any law, you don't really know what it means. Right. So, so what so, you're saying is you're looking forward to the first lawsuit against <laughs> yeah, the Beaverton. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bring it on. No, please don't. Uh, <laughs> we're so poor. We don't have any money. So speaking of which, do you guys have a lawyer at the Beaverton, like a la the Simpsons who sits there and says, this joke conforms to all statutes and regulations. Yeah, I'm that guy. You're uh, that guy. I, I am a lawyer. I should have mentioned that before I went on a diatribe about uh, Commons Law. So whenever someone uh, writes to us, they write to the Beaverton account, then I turn around from a legal account and, and point out some laws and say, go away now. And you, usually they do. We've got the Paris Climate Summit coming up. Let's say you get invited to speak at the Paris Climate Summit. Yeah, okay. What are you going to tell them? What needs to be done? All right. Yeah, I'm really qualified for this. Let's go. Honest answer, and uh, you know, I hope you don't mind me approaching it seriously. Honest that's answer. That's not why we invited that's you fair. here. That's fair. That's fair. And you shouldn't have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> honest answer is, and this is a simplistic answer, but I think it's one that goes not spoken enough, is we need to get the smartest people in a room. And they need to come up with a plan and we need to figure out how we can fund it. Um, because, you know, we treat politicians as if they're supposed to know something. And, and what they know is what they've been told or what they've read. But there are people who, who have devoted their lives to this. And they get to speak, you know, once every couple months when some newspaper needs a quote for an article about something a minister said. So, I mean, honestly, if you can come up with some kind of plan where, you know, the leading climatologist, the world's leading climate change scientists were to get into a room and tell us what we need to do – and if for some reason it was doable, which it probably won't be because it probably means like no more beef and no more cars. Yeah, well, I was going to say we're, yeah. we're like bordering on being a petrol state. So like how optimistic are you that we're actually going to be able to hit any of our climate change goals? Not optimistic at all. I don't think we're going to. I think um, it's certainly encouraging that we now have a minister who recognizes climate change. But that's, <laughs> that's about the definition of a baby step. Yeah. We're certainly at the precipice of the point of no return if, we're, if we haven't already crossed it. And I'm not sure that – 
even with that, I'm not sure that there's enough will on the part of everyday people to change their lives enough to do anything, let alone what the government's willing to do. And the will of the government comes from the will of the people. So if combating climate change means, well, you know, you're going to not eat, not be able to eat beef and no one drives cars for a year or much longer, then I'm not sure the will is there yet, even with all the documentaries and all the information we have. So I'm not sure the government is going to stick its neck out when the population isn't 100% committed to radical change. On the brighter side, yeah. the impending doom of human civilization, ripe for comedy, yes, right? it will be. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, I'm starting to get a sense of why <laughs> you deal with stuff through comedy. Yeah, I have a pretty pessimistic outlook on the world. But yeah, no, it'll be great. I mean, uh, <laughs> until until the internet goes down, uh, which I'm putting about 2025, uh, it'll be great. You know, that's when the apocalypse will get a little harder. But, you know, we can still gather people to some kind of barn in the outskirts where humanity still exists. Uh, and we can tell them the comedy we've written. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be fun. Okay, so... Um, Assuming the apocalypse is going to be staved off for at least another five or 10 years. Yeah. What would you like to see as far as Canadian political satire? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think as we've touched on throughout the, the, the discussion we're having is there are ways to do Canadian political satire differently. They're not currently being done on television. So I would very much like to see a television satire program that's uh, got some teeth to it that that looks at things not so much in a silly lens. As you guys might know, we're trying to create that program, so I would very much love to see that. Oh, happen. so you're actually trying to go televised? Yeah, we have a pilot with Comedy Network. Oh no way! Okay. Yeah, and we're waiting on them to to see if they're going to pick it up. So I'd really love to see that happen, you know, because that'd be a fun way to spend the last years before the apocalypse. Um, <laughs> and it's, that would be my my dream scenario of having something that's both. Television, which is the old medium and and able to be shareable online the way John Oliver does. I don't want to speak too strongly, but I think that would go a long way towards giving Canadians something that is angry, smart, and funny all at the same time, which is, I think, a lot of the comedy that I love comes from. Perfect. Luke Gordon Field, Editor-in-Chief of The Beaverton. Thanks very much for this. This was fun. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, this was a blast. That's our show for this week. If you'd like to continue the conversation on social media, and we highly suggest you do, just go to Twitter and search for Canada Land Comments. It'll be the first result you find. Thanks to our producer, Kevin Sexton. And music, as always, by Nathan Burley. We're online at canadalandshow.com. While you're there, do not forget to sign up for the newsletter, Not Sorry. You can reach us by emailing me, Desmond, at canadalandshow.com. Or Andre at canadalandshow.com. And if you have show ideas or general feedback, please send that to Kevin at canadalandshow.com. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please support us. Just visit patreon.com slash canadaland. Canada Land Shortcuts will be up on Thursday, and the next episode of Canada Land Commons will be out next Tuesday. That's it. What, else was... what are you looking for, dude? What do you want me to say? So, do you have a party trick? Do I have a party trick? No, I just stand there and cite legal precedent. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.